All right. It's always. Hello and welcome to Shakespeare on Screen. I am James Kelly and I meet up with my uh, special guest every week to talk about adaptations of Shakespeare's plays on screen. This week, finishing off our our analysis of the Hollow Crown and other adaptations of the Henry Ad, we have Alex coming back. Hi, Alex. Hello. Thanks for having me back. It's great to have you back. And we've gone through all the other, the first three plays of the Hollow Crown cycle, and we're finishing off with the Hollow Crown's Henry V. But because it's Henry V, there's two other really, really, really famous adaptations out there. And Alex rightfully pointed out we can't not, in good consciousness, only talk about the Hollow Crown's Henry V. We have to bring in Sir Laurence Olivier's adaptation from 1944 and the 1989 adaptation by Sir Kenneth Branagh. So I was, of course, I want to talk about those two as well, because each of these movies is very fascinating of when they were created, the people creating them, and the tone. And this is what I love about Shakespeare and what we get into, unlike the episode we did with Vicky on Romeo and Juliet, we have, I think, personally, three wonderful adaptations to talk about. Yeah, we're, we're not going to just yes. rail against one as being crappy and why the other one is a great example of good. We got three wonderful interpretations. Three, three very different Henry V's, I, I would say. And experiences, obviously. I would certainly agree with that. I can rank them, but I'm not going to. Uh, I think that's unlike the, the Romeo and Juliet's or even most uh, Shakespeare adaptations I've seen. Um, each one has something that I really like. Uh, these three, Henry V brings something great to the table and they all have their different flaws in different ways but we can get into that okay yeah um so a good starter just um i mean there's so much wonderful trivia and background to all these so first we have just um oldest to newest 1944 it's the middle of world war ii and Laurence Olivier has already made a name for himself as a stage actor. He is already hailed as a brilliant stage actor at this point. And who comes to him but the prime minister, the prime minister, Winston Churchill, comes to him and says, please make a, a Shakespeare movie to rally the troops as we're about to do this I'm sure he didn't actually say we're about to do this invasion, but that's what kind of the purpose and just to boost Britain's morale as they're the Blitzkrieg is reaching its end. And so in 1943 in Ireland, Sir Laurence Olivier, who had never directed a, a film before, makes his first film. And it's Henry V. And what everyone cites about this play, about this movie, and it's completely fair to say, 
it is a British propaganda movie. That's what it was intended to be, and that's what it is. And absolutely, and before we, we pick it apart for that, because we can knock it, but at the same time, I mean, it, it's World War Two. I mean, it's not like the Americans weren't doing the same thing, and propaganda, it's what's sold. But just looking at the movie, it is, you, you can look at it from a 21st century perspective and, and point out its flaws cinematically, but it is incredible what they did in, in 1944 in the middle of a war that they put together a movie on the, the scale that this, this thing is. Mm-hmm. Technologically, it is, it's incredible for, for its day. Absolutely. Well, as a preview, I, I'm going to be gushing over Sir Lawrence Olivier quite a bit in this podcast thing is we i've talked a lot about sir Lawrence olivier in in a more conceptual level for this podcast this is the first time i'm actually able to talk about him as an actor and talk about one of his movies so maybe i'm a bit just eager to finally talk about the legend of really not not really he was the first shakespearean actor that we have really recorded performances of and not just audio we have audio of of some of the older actors like uh, guy gold we, we do have guy gold's audio but this is something really special to have a recorded visual and sound recorded shakespeare and that was Olivier. Olivier brought Shakespeare to cinema. I will not. Uh, I will never argue with you on on his importance as far as, as Shakespeare in cinema, as his importance as an actor, and as a one of the the greatest 20th century Shakespearean actors. Um, this isn't my favorite performance of his. Uh, his Henry the Fifth. He's not my favorite Henry on this list, and it's not my favorite Olivier performance. But what I will give him credit for is is the directing more than the acting. Even uh, I think he made some amazing choices, um, mm-hmm. even amongst the propaganda. So what he chose to keep and cut, um, and and just as a way to jump into uh, instead of circling around. So. The play opens almost unfortunately with one of the most famous monologues in, in Shakespeare, the chorus mm-hmm. O's for O for Muse of Fire. And and I said unfortunately because one of the reasons that monologue that prologue exists in the play circa fifteen ninety-nine is to actually say to the audience, We're about to present this amazing epic the the biggest best battles you've ever seen but we're a poor theater company and we got nothing so yeah they don't have use your imagination but then jump to the 20th century where it's all on all on film and you have the prologue saying imagine you see horses and a couple you know half an hour later we see a whole horde of horses charging off to battle so we don't have to imagine it because the film does it. But what Olivier does and what's brilliant about about this movie in particular is the way he 
he frames it. He doesn't just... A lot of people include that that opening monologue just because of necessity. It's it's famous. You have to. Uh, and the Hollow Crown kind of does that. It's it's over uh, visuals of, of Henry's funeral. Uh, well, and, uh, we need to talk about that in... We will, but in a bit, but yes. So what Olivier does that is so brilliant is that he begins with an actual play. It's the the first part is the the prologue steps onto a stage. You have an audience, and it's not even just the prologue. It's it's the basically first act or two acts. So when we first see Olivier step out as as Henry V, he is not Henry V. He is actor playing henry v yes that was just such a brilliant way to enter into it okay first thing i i just to try jump off of what you're saying and gush my love it's been it's been a while since i've seen olivier's henry v and brana's henry v also and something that i i read this quote I forget exactly where, but or maybe it was a podcast, whatever it was. I, I personally tutted a little when I heard it, where the, this this Shakespearean scholar said, "Well, Olivier was a was a great actor, but his his skills as a filmmaker were are just nothing to compare with, with the likes of Orson Welles's Shakespeare movies." And I was just like, "What? Oh." Yeah, I don't nonsense, get, utter I don't nonsense. And like, like the Chimes of Midnight, I think it's actually very interesting, but no, <laughs> that's, that's not true at all. <laughs> the three uh, Olivier's trilogy of Shakespeare movies stand the test of time, and they are actually incredibly well-directed movies and very experimental movies, even to this day. And what you're saying right now. The brilliance and I think fascinating thing is that in some ways Olivier's Henry V is an art movie. And in propaganda, it is the most best of propaganda in that it's just this genuine love of Shakespeare and Elizabethan culture and that we just open on the Globe Theater and so we're transported back to what it was like and we see what it would be like to be to be the the, the Elizabethan audience and be a groundling and they they include a part where the groundlings get rained on and the play still goes on and people just have to deal with it and speaking from personal experience I went to the Globe Theater in 2012 to see the taming of the shrew and i was a groundling and i did get rained on so i got the true authentic shakespeare experience <laughs> it was wonderful and uh and so i love that and part of i think olivier's henry v i agree is not is not his most interesting performance but i think his debut is fascinating because he is in essence debuting as Olivier the actor before we see him as Henry V. And his debut also, to confirm that he is Olivier the actor, we see him cough ever so slightly 
off stage right before he then goes on stage. Well, there's that whole scene. It's a, well, it's a, more like a moment of just him walking on the stage, and he's getting his costume together. He's preparing himself, so it is very. And, and, and we also get to see wonderfully, which I love, like the actors off stage drinking, and yeah. the the young boys being dressed up and shaving to become girls. And it's all wonderful. It's like it, it brought a smile to my face as I see it. And and what it also does and is the real kind of stagey acting that I really like. And playing up the first act, as you said, is kind of played as a farce. Absolutely. And one of the biggest, and there's huge differences between all of them, but one of the biggest probably is the Salic law scene. Yes. Oh, yes. Just to set it up. Um, so one of the first scenes in the play is the the archbishop, who is pretty much the driving factor, according to Shakespeare, not history, of of this starting a war with friends. He wants to start a war with friends for his own political financial means, um, and so he convinces Henry to do so through a very long genealogical speech. In the Browner version and the Hall of Crown, it's played very straight and well done, but it's it's played completely uh, seriously. The the Olivier version, and and I think that this this speaks to Olivier's not only love but just absolute mastery over over these plays. He would recognize that yes, this thing is just this long babbly speech about genealogy the audience would need something and and so he gives them this befuddled archbishop who loses his papers and is mixing things up and it is completely played for laughs and you have the and so henry is is in essence the straight man and his line of saying of of just clarification is just pure clarification Am I right to to seek my right of France? And then the bishop saying, the sin be on me, if not. Is just more kind of jokey, and it's not treated at all seriously. And it's also important because for for what Olivier wants to go for, for his Henry V, is this is just a glorious adventure. This is a fun, rollicking adventure. And don't get too dwell, dwell too hard on the legality don't dwell too hard on the awful implications of this war this is just a fun exploit and this is just a fun play yes and and no and that kind of brings the next brilliant part of, of olivia's structure here because the whole thing evolves and the tone evolves as we essentially move forward mm-hmm. in, in history so uh, I actually can't remember offhand when the the switch happens. I should have taken notes. Of this, but... I, I I I remember. Let's okay. Let's let's okay. Let's talk about that, and then we should switch to some of the, talking about the opening for the other two, as yeah. the opening is important to understanding kind of, and it's a big fundamental important of aspect of understanding what type of Henry each of these directors and creators are going for but the big transition which is one of the big things where i say anyone who who gives that kind of snotty hoity-toity kind of attitude of olivier not being a great director i challenge you just to look at that moment 
and it's about 30 minutes in because we've already seen the first version of Bardolph and the East Cheap crowd. And we see them just kind of, and we see a, a male actor play Mistress Quickly. And then suddenly we have the scene where the curtains and the chorus, and suddenly the scene where they're transitioning to King Henry is about to sail off. That's when the transition suddenly becomes that we, and by this point in the story, just like the audience that's watching the play, we are the audience and we are so engrossed that we want to, that we do imagine, and that's when we're suddenly transported into the story completely. Like Olivier has kind of done what Brana does in the Much Ado of like just gently getting you in the mood of the story and gently getting you into the understanding the language, being confused, being like a bit rowdy, but then you slowly get it and then you get it and then you're in. And you're in at the point where Henry is about to sail off and when it's basically in a three-act structure, the second act is beginning. Right. And and yeah, even even the transition sort of goes from, from Elizabethan theater to more modern for 1940s soundstage, and mm-hmm. then to the just straight-up movie. So you're, there's no barrier between you and, and the action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that, for me, it's... Olivier's understanding of the structure of this play, because it is an absolutely constructed play, more so than probably any of the other histories. Um, just the way it's broken down, the use of the chorus, uh, it's mm-hmm. almost ancient Greek style, uh, very intentionally. Yes. Uh, and Olivier's understanding of that is what elevates this movie. Not that there aren't other good things and his performances, but, but for me, that's it's the structure that elevates this one. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so, so let's, let's jump to the openings then to see how the others compare. Okay, so just go by theatrical release date, time. Sure. So, okay, for for Kenneth Branagh, Kenneth Branagh is has a similar story to Olivier, and I think at the end we'll do the Olivier Branagh comparison game. I I wrote a whole little page of notes on it. But uh, Brana was, especially after this first movie, became hailed as the next Olivier. And you got to admire the guts on Brana for saying that his first Shakespeare movie, I'm going to do Henry V. I was like, but we already have a great Henry V movie. I think I can do my version, though. I want to do mine. And to his credit, he made a thoroughly different Henry V. Absolutely. And I will say, for the record, this is not only is, is Brana my favorite Henry V out of the three, uh, as, as an actor playing Henry V, mm, um, okay. but this is probably my favorite Brana movie out of his canon. Ooh. As much as I love his Hamlet, this this one is, is probably, in my opinion, his best. Um, there's something I just truly adore about as much ado it's just so much fun that maybe that might be my my favorite but 
his first three Shakespeare movies are masterpieces, so it's it's just whatever mood I'm in, honestly. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, so the chorus in I think honestly to be a, a tiny bit blunt or maybe play a little bit fair favoritism. I think the chorus in the in Olivier's is the best of them for the prologue because it's because it's it's better reflecting how it's the confession and admission of look this is all artificial this is all just bear with us yeah we we can't bring and kind of what shakespeare did in a lot of his plays especially the latter half of his plays is just kind of have this meta almost postmodern analysis of the nature of art and the nature of the artificiality. And that's one of the things that the prologue really touches upon, in addition to, of course, being just an open apology of like, look, all right, sorry, I'm doing a really glorious story, but I can't bring you like the, the pizzazz of this glorious story. Yeah, and that was, it was a very, uh, I think in 1599, which is when this Julius Caesar and, and Much Ado were, were created. Mm-hmm. Uh, all, he was He was a very meta mood, he did that. He has in Julius Caesar, the after the, the assassination of Caesar, how many times shall this scene be played out? Uh, <laughs> each, and much do has enough meta commentary as well. Um, so yeah, he was he was certainly in a meta mood. Uh, I do agree that um, Olivia's prologue does it the best. I mean, I have a huge bias for for Derek Jacobi. I like I love that guy. <laughs> I love Jacobi. And and I actually I do like just the it's, it's very simple. Like there's nothing special about it but just delivering the chorus in this isolated... in terms of of actual reading the dialogue it it, it goes to jacoby yes but even just the you know empty space and opening the door to the to the play essentially it, it was a nice touch nothing compared to what olivia did but it's still uh i for me i thought his not the prologue but his other chorus appearances really i don't know they just seem to really work and and, it's, and it is in the way you read it um it, it just perfectly captures what the chorus is in this play and that is the the propaganda piece so even though the the browner version was far less of a propaganda piece and we'll get into what it was uh i think that that jacoby really at least carries forth that heroic narration almost like uh in the movie 300 he he reminded me of that narrator ah i could see that yeah well um shakespeare is the urtext for so much of the uh, of the this kind of war epic genre that comes out of later there's so many movies that are and stories that are similar to what henry v is have you got the ragtag bunch of people? You got this big character general that's the main character, and you got some colorful enemies. You got a good story, and that's the template for lots of these. Just realize that uh, you're right. Shakespeare invented the western. <laughs> <laughs> so the settings may change, but the stories don't my friend so the the opening of of brana's henry v is so much more 
as you say, serious and much more straight. And I love the candlelight, like the, the shadows and the cinematography for this. And the the music, it's big, grand, and operatic. And to, to also emphasize and compare what we're going to do when we talk about the Hollow Crown, but Henry V's entrance, he is... He comes in like Darth Vader in silhouette. And he's this big, towering figure. And yes, he's he is young, but there is no question of this is the king. This is the king. And the way he sits on the crown, or sits on the throne, rather. Not on the crown, what do I say? <laughs> and as you said earlier, of... The Salic Law, and there is a little, there's quite a few little tributes that Brana gives to Olivier's movie, and one is the Salic Law. The Bishop of Canterbury is holding a piece of paper as he's reading and making the speech. But it's completely serious and uh, very much more in line. It just it gets more straight with each performance. So you have this one, and then Holocrans just even more. Condensed but straightforward. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the key difference between so the again the whole point of that speech is justification for for Henry to go to war. In Olivier played as a farce. This one is war is an absolute must. It is a it is a necessity. Well, you I don't, don't know if I see it that way. What I do see is war is a heavy decision. And. Henry is has already made up his mind, I think, but he is weighing it, and he wants the justification from the bishop to say, "Can I do this? Can I legally claim this?" And he says, "Yes, yes, you can." Through obscure, legal, quite frankly, garbage ways, but yes, yes, you can. And then we get the tennis balls. And did Olivier cut that, didn't he? And I'm, I'm just trying to remember now. No, it's in there, but it, it's yeah. it's just like everything else in in the, that first act. It's yeah. kind of played farcically as just like tennis balls and just like and just Henry like has a good some good tennis puns like ah, ha 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 we'll rack you up and in your court you will regret this ha 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 funny and that's kind of it. Now, yeah. getting a little bit into performance with Brana's Henry V, I didn't remember this, but seeing it now, oh my gosh, Brana is pretty scary as Henry V. It's yes. just like he's so cold-blooded. Yeah. And that's I really like the comparison between Brana and Hiddleston just because of how much closer they are than, than Olivier's performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hiddleston is definitely trying to do more Brana than I'm, I'm sure he's trying to make it his own, but he is definitely more Brana than Olivier. Um, but yeah, Brana for me out of the three of them, maybe sometimes over the top, but really captures the 
fierceness you read by you know read you know the histories of of the real henry v and it's always this he was beloved he was chaste he was you know pious he was also a horrible warmonger <laughs> and yeah. Brian was like oh yeah i can play with that one <laughs> and yeah. he he gives it in in a lot of in many different scenes and i'm sure we'll touch on more but this is this is one of them where yeah he uh and so that's one of the that's a fantastic opening and that's quite a different opening and different impression because in a way even though he already wanted to go to war the insult from the dauphin just clinches it for for brana where it's like yeah now i'm definitely going to war it's like no no way am i gonna let this slide and then it's such a, not to try and read Shakespearean tension here, but it is just the character of the Dauphin is, it's such a, almost, it's it's also a propaganda piece, but this stemming from the, the original source, not any adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, back in, in Richard II, we talked about, you can read that play, two people can read that play and come away with who you're supposed to support, Richard or, or Bolingbroke. In this one, you're not supporting. You have to stretch to to humanize the French, and oh, then yes. is is just the 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 epitome of that. He is this cocky, you know. Ah, Henry is still how, and he just he's just this stupid little kid. I can do whatever. I can joke with him. I can mock him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we'll get into that with the Hollow Crown. Because I think that's key to understanding the Hollow Crown's interpretation of Henry V. I think it's in Brana as well. Um, uh, it is, but it just... I think Brana's is much more... And maybe this is a larger interpretation. If Olivier's is the glory of war, Brana's is much more the price of war. It, and, it, and it's much more that war is not a glamorous thing. It's ugly... It's bloody and I don't know. I, I agree with that, but what Brennan does is he shows that by not shying away from Henry's you know, more warmongering sorry, or fiercer side. Um, and in a sense, he is, out of the three, uh, Henry V, he seems the most provoked by uh, the, the tennis ball. Um, Hiddleston kind of plays it off. That's like, well, I guess this makes my decision uh but brana seems the most affected by it mm-hmm. uh, okay want to get into i don't care how long this podcast will be we'll see uh the let's get into the beginning of the hollow crown now so this one is a third director for the hollow crown for the final play it was directed by thea sherak who also, all three of these movies directed by by people that never had directed anything before. Hmm. Like Thea Sherrick had directed stage, but she'd never directed anything on film before. Has she done anything since? I should have. Uh, yeah, she's done like episodes of some shows. Okay. Since and like she's done more plays, but yeah. I like a lot of the direction in this. Uh... Not as much as the Richard II, but probably as a from a directorial standpoint, more than the Henry the Fourth. Mm-hmm. I don't like this opening though. I, I 
there's such a disconnect between, and that's what I meant earlier when I said, you know, for John Hurd, I, I love him, a fantastic greeting again, but there's no reason for that prologue to be in this except for the fact that it kind of has to be. I disagree because of what they choose to juxtapose with the prologue narration. And to have the entire play begin with the framing device of Henry V's funeral, that puts a whole different light to the tone of everything that's about to happen. Does it? Because I think so, because you realize that that one that this is what what it's going to accomplish because we know at the end that no henry's gonna die like this isn't gonna end happily this ends with henry being dead and it also so already they're setting up that the epilogue of this play is is going to be much more defining of this play than other versions and i think it, it establishes in essence, a way to play with the propaganda elements of the play by making it the entire play a nostalgia trip. See, and As, I agree and, and, and you can even notice, and this is also key, and something really important about Henry the, about the Hollow Crowns, Henry V versus versus Brana and Olivier's is this is the fourth part of a cycle, and we have already spent four hours with Hiddleston as Henry the as Prince Hal and now we're seeing him as Henry the fifth yes and I'll, I'll give it that so first of all I actually I really like the the framing device and I actually really like the fact that it starts with the funeral my issue is with the prologue I think that if they'd done more what they did with Richard the second they just had the music and as a tangent this thing is scored amazingly I love this <laughs> this, this movie so I would have just as bold a move it is, I would have cut the prologue and just have music, Henry's funeral. Because, I again, I don't see the connection between framing it as, as Henry's funeral and kind of a continuation from where we left Henry or, you know, when we left him in, in Henry IV Part Two to this, uh, forgive us for we don't have horses and we can't make this as epic as, as we'd like to. Well, but <laughs> what they're saying i think that the, the, they're more emphasizing the lines of remember this time and think back of this time of henry v that's right. what the setup is what they're they're trying to emphasize and what they're going with and also just a fun note just le- learning from behind the scenes from the special features of the dvds i own they weren't sure that henry that Hiddleston was going to come back to do Henry V. Yeah. He had done the, both Henry the Fourth, and then was contracted for the Avengers and did the Avengers. And then he came back and then Thea Sherrick talked to him. was like, do you want to? And he did, a, and he just on the spot did St. Crispin's Day speech. And I was like, okay, yeah. And she got, he got her, her direction ideas and they went with it. Hmm. See, that's all, because I've been running under the assumption that he was cast as hell because he would be Henry V. <laughs> because he is so much more suited for this one. Although, that being said, having now watched three, all three of them in relative quick succession, his best per- per- eh, his best performance is probably Henry IV Part Two. Just throwing that out there. Just for that. Uh, I, I, 
I would agree with you, but I think I like his Henry. What really goes with 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 his King Harry is that Hal is never gone. It's just Hal is now in a different place, and what he now focuses on, where he expends his passion. Because right after we see King Harry as a corpse, we then juxtapose to him on a horse with a little with fire in his heart as he's galloping, and then we see him kind of rushing in to the court and kind of plopping himself onto the onto the throne and then grabbing the crown and be and so in essence Hal has never gone fully away from from Henry from Hiddleston's Henry V. I he's still like there and he's still and still a bit more nebulous of what type of a king he really is in that Yes, he's thrown away. He's no longer hanging out with the East Cheap people, but he still is this passionate man. And he's still this kind of. But now it's and it is interesting. And I'm kind of like the audience of, and I'm the court of just I'm stunned of like what the, wow, you really did go the other way. Like wow, huh? And that, that yeah. that's the emphasis of of the bishops just being stunned at Henry the fifth's transformation from as we remember from seeing the other two parts of henry the fourth of like this ruffian prince this unknown drunk to being whoa you're like actually a pretty serious dude i do and, like that they built in continuity and i think it, it's a bit of a reading against the the play because both the play and to be fair this is it was based on historical sources Really goes out of its way to say Henry the Fourth is, or sorry, Henry the Fifth is not Hal. Just as soon as the crown was placed on his head, he transformed, and he is in absolutely no way the same person. Mm-hmm. Uh, but besides, let's try and build at least some continuity, which I appreciate. Well, well, but the what the what the hollow crown goes with is it's on the court's mind and it's on the French mind, and that's why. And I think what you referenced earlier. The Dauphin being like so haughty and so dismissive of Henry V is because he knows about the Prince Hal days, is because he knows of the East Jeep days. He thinks that he's not he's not against Henry V. He's up against Prince Hal, and he's just Prince Hal. This guy's a joke. Like no yeah. way is like or is he a threat to us? Absolutely not. And. The other thing I think worth mentioning, and I want to single him out. Now we didn't mention him, and he's played wonderfully by Brian Blessed in in uh, Brana's film. But Anton Lesser as Exeter really leaves a wonderful impression, as along with Henry's court. Henry's court is a bit more prominent, I feel, in the Hollow Crowns, Henry V, than in all the other ones. And I just love that dry delivery that Anton Lesser, this wonderful character actor that's popping up everywhere these days. He's in Wolf Hall. He's in Game of Thrones. He's in The Crown. And he has a whole wide range of being the nice guys, kind of losers, kind of creeps. And this one of just being this really swell lord and this this wonderful dry wit of just this wonderful dry reading of what's in what's the treasure? tennis balls and then he like throws them down to the ground and spills them out i love that shot. it's almost uh that shot in particular is almost like the same kind of just the way the the filming was done when uh 
all the guys are coming in with the heads for uh, for ball and Oh yeah. Just spilling across the floor. Uh, yeah. Just to echo that, I think that yeah, this was the best Exeter. Um, the other, they're going for the more, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like gruff, <laughs> um, or not even not gruff, but you know, more uh, strong, I guess Exeter. And uh, he is, he's just so soft-spoken, but not in a weak way. Mm-hmm. It's just that quiet power that he gives, and, and I do, I thought that was fantastic. And in it's in Brana's, but it's definitely in here. Is he is 100% Henry's lieutenant? Yeah, he is the biggest, like the closest to a PM that you get in this time. And I, I love that. And I also love uh, something that we we can compare to the other Hollow Crown films is what Sherrick does that I noticed immediately is like all the candlelights and the way it's shot, it's the castle under Henry V. And this is also part, part, a bit of the nostalgia filter, but it's like, it's so much brighter than Henry IV's court. Oh yeah. That's... It's like, it's actually like bright and warm. And this seems like a fun place to be at. Whereas like Henry IV was like a cold, miserable place. Which was like, for that play. Um, oh yeah, yeah this, perfect. Yeah. I get the sense of this is a, this is a functioning court. Um, yeah, this play, this this version or this episode of the Holocron, it's it goes back to to Richard II. It has far more interesting cinematography than the two Henry the Fourths. It's uh, the battles in this are fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and sorry, I know we're jumping around here. Yeah. It, so yeah, just like that, it's a very dynamic opening, and I love also the stage direction of of Harry throwing the tennis ball at the ambassador. Yes. And to make Montjoy just the the ambassador for all the French ambassador scenes is also a wonderful touch. Yeah. Just like, yeah, why, why make it another guy? It's just Montjoy the entire time. <laughs> Poor Montjoy. He just gets crap done completely. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, so for me... And again, I'm trying to. I was trying to compare more the the Holocron to to Brana's because that they're far closer in terms of of what they do. The Holocron, I think, works extremely well as the final episode of that that four. Oh episodes. yes. Um, but it doesn't have, and it's not necessary to its detriment, but it doesn't have the clear statement that the other two have. If if uh, Olivier was Winston Churchill war propaganda and, and Brana was the cautionary tale about the devastation of war. Holocron was neither. <laughs> and you just look at based on what they cut and what they kept and, and the way Hiddleston played Henry, uh, it was very much more, we need to fit this play into a certain time and we want to tell uh, a coherent story for an audience not super familiar with the play that fits in with the Henry the fourth plays that they had just seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so you don't get the, the clear message that you do with the other two. In the whole but I, I, at the same time, I, I think the framing device is the message they're telling. And we'll get back to it when we circle back to the epilogue, but I think the epilogue is key to understanding 
that their interpretation of Henry V is that this is flash in the pan. And this is in some ways Ozymandias of look on my works, he mighty in despair, but nothing surrounds us. What? Yeah. Where it's Henry V had these amazing, glorious stories and he's this great character and this great bright figure. But what did he accomplish? What did he accomplish? What are we saying about him? Remember the, the opening of the hollow crown is let us tell sad stories of the death of Kings. Yeah, no, that's that is a fair way of looking at it. If you uh, and so we, as a whole, uh, and then especially, I don't know if they knew that they were doing season two, uh, the War of the Roses at this point, but yeah. uh, it, it obviously ties to what comes next, as the epilogue clearly does. And you also got to, uh, at least. Um, that's just uh, my own interpretation and my own kind of way I, I, I look at it. Yeah, but like no, it. no, I understand what you're saying. It's like there is no kind of like firm statement on war in this one because I think they're doing more of a character study. The Hollow Crown wants to do more just exploring. Yes, yeah, I would I would agree with more that. Just understand of like, I'm still – It's more on the question of Hal himself of just is Hal changed man or is he still just the Hal he always was? along with, like, in the meantime, what did it accomplish? And the big omission of basically the long Salic Law rambling speech in the Hollow Crowns one, I think is fine because as an audience, we're remembering that key line that I clued in and zoomed in on in Henry IV Part Two, where Henry IV's dying advice to his son is, uh... I think the only way that people we won't have civil wars is if you just go to war with a common enemy somewhere else. Yeah. And so that really makes everything that Hal does very cynically motivated in that he just doesn't even really care about legal pretense, but it's like, do I have a legal pretense? Bishop of Canterbury who's worried about tech is like, yeah, sure. Okay, great. I'm going to go to war. Obviously, I think the cutting was just for cutting. <laughs> because also, yeah. You look at the different things that are good. So, uh, for example, there, just to jump a bit ahead uh, from the beginning, there's the scene in Act 2 in the play where Henry um, executes the traitors, Cambridge, Grey, and Scroop. And the only version, I thought the Holocron did this, but then I rewatched it. Nope, they didn't. The only version that includes that scene, well, actually, Olivier includes the beginning of the scene. Yes. He pardons other people as as a trap, but they ignore that part. So Olivier is like, look at Henry, pardoning people. Yay. And then Bronny gives us the rest of the scene where, no, that's just a trap to justify killing the other three. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Holocron omits that completely. And again, I think that was just A for time and B um, because Holocron is far more invested in the Falstaff plot than, than the other two, which it is weird. If you're watching this or if you're directing this as a complete standalone, that those two Falstaff scenes are a bit odd to deal with because yes. they just yes. come from nowhere, which is why both uh, Olivier and Brenna insert flashbacks from Henry the Fourth Part One. Um, as Falstaff is dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Brenna actually changes, he does the same thing when Bardolph is, is getting, or uh, Henry's sentencing Bardolph to death. He has another flashback, which 
is completely fake, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Um, but well, well, no, not fake. It's just his own jumbling around of. Well, he uh, he supplements uh, the, the, for false stuff. He he does yes, his, uh, like the hanging line, yeah. Yeah. But the. But also not just that, but but that's very powerful. Of just to have say, will you hang a king? Like, yes, no. I thought that was brilliant. It's like, oh, you completely just harvested, uh, you know, Shakespeare for for your own purpose. Well done. <laughs> um, but, yeah. 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 And, uh, but the hologram has, has again more of a vested interest because we've been following Falstaff for these two plays. So I think that they cut this, the the traitor scene just so we don't lose focus from the two Falstaff scenes which border it. Um, yeah, and uh, in the holocron, that's just one scene. Yes. Yeah. One scene. And it's... Uh, and I will say, in Olivier's defense, even though he, he omits quite a few of the, the shakier parts, I found the scenes with the actors playing the East Cheap crowd the funniest of the three. Oh, <laughs> they're, no. like, they're, they're like legit playing it perfectly of just so broadly and so just stupidly. It's just wonderful. I'm, I was utterly having a kick when I saw them on, on film. Yeah, that but, was fantastic. And, and I don't think it's any criticism. You can't hold it against Olivier for, for what he's, he's cutting because he has a, a very singular vision and he's going with it. So uh, first of all, Henry doesn't execute Cambridge Group and Gray. He doesn't execute Bardolph. That whole thing is cut. Yes. Um, and even other changes, like to the there's that subtle change to the St. Crispin's Day speech, um, to the uh, the I should have pulled up the actual speech, but uh, you know for those. Who oh, part- I know what you're you're saying. No version has included that line. I've no, seen so far. Does I think it has. I think it's the full speech. Line for I don't. Life. I don't think it is. I think it's just like. so base. That's the line I'm talking about. Of what? Uh, so it's in the Saint Christmas Eve. For though, for he who fights with me today is my brother. Be he ne'er so base, this day shall gentle him. Sorry, I'm butchering Saint Christmas Day, and I feel bad for that. So I'm pulling up the yes. speech. No, the big line that all versions have omitted is in the very beginning no version has included the line but if it is a sin to be covetous for glory then i am the greatest sinner okay yeah no version has included that line which is very interesting because that puts a different a little bit of a different light into into hal's character one other big one as i'm getting the actual christmas day speech that uh that olivier cuts that brandon definitely keeps and i think holocron does as well um when he's getting the reports of the dead uh and so westmoreland is reading off off the the or he hands him the letter and henry's reading off the dead all of the nobles who died uh the line in the original play is and however many of you know not worth no, no- yes uh, Olivier yes. taps that out. So what, what I'm getting at is Olivier not only was going for a much more magnanimous Henry, but a, a much more egalitarian one, whereas the play and as Brennan, both Holocram don't shy away from as much, shows that now there, there's a bit of classism happening here. It's, it's clearly the nobles are the ones that matter, and in, in true Shakespeare fashion, the commoners are just... Yes. They're there. <laughs> well, and this actually, let, let's talk about this right now. 
and we, we do when I have you on, we, we, we get into a little bit sometimes just the, the context of the play itself and the content of the play itself. There's a huge scholarly debate to this day of how much of Henry V even is a propaganda play and how much does Shakespeare really love Henry V because if he does, and I, I personally believe he does, it's a very warts and all interpretation of Henry V. It is, and that's the exact point of the, the prologue. And and so the prologue is propaganda. It doesn't matter what version you're doing. It, if you there's no way to read the the original text and not see the prologue as propaganda. It is every piece of the prologue. Not sorry, not prologue. Chorus, um, really, including the prologue is look at how absolutely amazing Henry is. But then within the actual scenes, that's when you start getting the, the warts and all. Uh, and the, the biggest example is in Act 4, the chorus is all about Henry going around to his men and cheering them up and giving them a little touch of Henry in the night. And yes. then the very following scene is his men basically saying, nobody gives a crap about us and yeah. I'll fight to, you know... If if Henry gets ransomed, he'll be saved. But if we do, no, we'll just be executed because yeah. it doesn't matter. So that that dichotomy the, is brilliant. The quote that George R. R. Martin loves and quotes all the time, and was an inspiration for Game of Thrones, is, "Well, I pray the 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 war that King has tasked us to is just, or else we are about to die for nothing, and mm-hmm. our souls may be at risk for this." Which is just a great question, and that's part of the debate. And that that Shakespeare is allowed and does include those questions of like of just the nature of war, of just we're, we're sent off here, like I don't know why we're here, and we're about to die. Why are we about to die? Why are we fighting here? What are we doing here? And the fact that they include the Solic Law scene, and yes, you can make a case, but if you're Edward the Third, quite frankly only really can you make the case of like maybe you should have been the rightful heir of france maybe maybe not really but there's a decent argument for edward the third after edward the third it's like no guys come on really really you're still the rightful heirs yes no you're not you're not yes you yeah you have have the, the criticism of both the cause for for war but again also who's really doing the the fighting uh and sorry just as i go back so i can redeem myself for absolutely butchering the quote uh the line i was going <laughs> before is uh it, the most famous line in the whole play uh we few we happy few we bend of brothers for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother be he ne'er so vile that's where Olivier ends. He does not include the next line, which is, this day shall gentle his condition, which means I don't care how poor you are. If you fight with me today, you'll be wealthy, whether literally or metaphorically. And you know, Olivier, for the singular vision that, that his version has, is just, no, you are my brother if you fight with me today. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we are all equal, equal, and we are all glorious English, and this is a paradise, and yay England. Uh, but Branagh's definitely leans more into, yeah, he's a, he's a bit of a classist. Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah, no, no, that's all in there. 
and that's great that it's in there. And uh, also, I was well, well, to talk about a little bit, just a little bit. We we we've talked about the about the 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 cold and warrior god that Brana is, and we've talked about the the fiery, passionate, still kind of Hal Hiddleston Henry. Olivier's Henry, I, I believe he is portraying 100% the ideal that's in the text of that Henry was the ideal medieval king. He embodied the chivalric ideal. And even though we have with Henry IV the wonderful parody of, of chivalry and saying with Falstaff and saying, no, this kind of thing is actually dumb. This chivalry is dumb. With Henry V, we have, no, 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 it's not all dumb. It's actually really inspiring when done right, when this model king, it actually is not outdated. It's actually really inspirational. It is. And maybe to me, that's that's a detriment to Olivier's performance. Maybe it is just a, it's a bit of a suffering because he strips away essentially the humanity of of Henry. Um, oh, yes. Oh, no, no. I, I, I agree with you completely is that. The problem, and actually this might be a good time to talk about this. We, you like to sometimes be critical of Shakespeare, the author. <gasps> How dare you? But uh, the Henry V is almost there with Bolingbroke of that there's only one scene in all the play that you get true insight into the character. Yes, I would actually agree with that. He is maybe not as removed as Bolingbroke, but he is definitely removed from us um and olivier doesn't have that scene does he and again i'm um, muddling my three versions up but the the soliloquy is that in olivier's i know no, it is yes yes it is okay. it is that's fair as but. is the prayer um and it's also hey by the way again of olivier is 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 a little bit up there with like uh, many of like the great directors of everything he does now is just taken for granted. So we don't remember that, Hey, this is actually like innovative. This is experimental. And this is like a new take on things is he introduces with Henry V, like, Hey, the soliloquy is voiceover to make clear. Like, this is thoughts. This is thoughts. This isn't like, and then when he gets to Richard III of the avant-garde of no, actually the soliloquy can also be breaking the fourth wall and being very interesting and a whole different feel when you see it on screen versus on stage. Yeah. And so he includes it. The one who doesn't include it is uh, the hollow crown. The hollow crown only includes the prayer. Her, yeah. Yes. Yes. You're right. Yes. <laughs> it is really hard watching these three. <laughs> yes. Back. Yes. Yes. They, they can blend, but we also, at the same time can also tell the distinct difference between oh, yes. all the on macro level for sure, but like what one keeps and what one cuts on a very micro level, you have to you have to have better notes than I do. Uh, and again, yeah, I don't I don't know if there's any real reason for condensing that speech just to include the prayer um, in the holocron. I think that because it doesn't, I know that the Olivier cuts essentially the whole Michael Williams subplot, which probably a good idea because that thing. I think it goes nowhere. <laughs> um, but uh, it's in there, but it's not like a. It's, it's not. Yeah, they. It's pretty much all cut. Brana completely cuts the resolution of it. 
Yes, he does. That is true. They all three of them cut different parts of that pretty useless subplot. <laughs> uh. So, but yeah. So what I what I'm sorry. What I meant by that was so the holocrams not doing the same thing as Olivia in terms of trying to uh, shy away from the the darker sides of of Henry because that soliloquy is even though it's a bit repetitive of past Shakespeare, it's it's a repetition of uneasy lies the head it's a bit of a repetition of richard's speech in uh, the courtroom scene uh and then henry the sixth speech in when he's sitting on a hill wishing he was a yeah. shepherd <laughs> shepherd in this case so shakespeare he he had his hits and he he liked to play them that's for sure yes. uh, but it, it's a very dark moment for really anytime Shakespeare has a king on stage it's why the hell am I king look how terrible it is to be king yeah what what does it actually gain it's like yeah it sound it looks good on the outside but like actually and it's like no this isn't fun at all it is interesting even though I don't think there's a reason for it why that was cut from the uh, the holocron well um Kind of, I think that we can talk about the Crispin about the speech next. So talk about that. But two things I want to touch on first. Um, you touched on, or, or why I think they they kept in the prayer but kept out the that other speech. One I think you touched on with a bit of the similarities, but I think also it's just because again the theme of continuity and really emphasizing the continuity is that prayer. Ha- carries so much more dimensions when it's stated in in the cycle of the hollow crown of richard of henry expects this is my divine punishment for my father usurping richard yeah no that is like he's begging and he's begging god please 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 i've been nice to richard's body i've done lots of nice things for richard please do not punish me for for my father killing richard please 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 do you think that's actually true or just made up history that he moved Richard's corpse to uh, to Westminster Abbey? Oh, no, no, no. That's 100% true. All right. <laughs> well, oh, yeah, know. yeah, yeah. No. Well, okay. To get into real history, the, the real history is like part of it was they did kind of a bang-up job of like not making it clear for a long time that they said, like Henry IV said, like, Richard is dead. That's what started the Mortimer rebellions, but part of the Mortimer rebellions were also we're going to free Richard II and put him back on the throne. That was, I'm not kidding, like that was part yeah. of their plan. It's like, and if he's dead, then we'll put on Mortimer. So well, for a it's... long time they didn't believe that that Richard was was dead, and Henry IV had to like parade his body in London and say, look, he's dead. This is him. He's dead. And then he just shuffled him off and then when henry v is king and it's safe to be nice to richard then he buries him and gives him a a, a kingly funeral yeah no it, um none of the, the versions... i mean the other thing that like history that shakespeare while we're on this tangent i i said in when we read the play for our shakespeare group is like the cambridge rebellion the, the, the Mortimer Rebellion was not at all motivated by French money. It was just, no, they just wanted to, they were just like the last gasp of the Mortimer Rebellions trying to... There was actually French involvement. Like, yes, the, the, the impetus for it was the Mortimer Rebellions and not France, as 
this play presents it. Yeah. Uh, but apparently there was some, I think it's one of the versions that I read, have some, the French were helping them, or there was something in that. that yeah, well, didn't. international, just make sure that, yeah. Yeah. A weaker kingdom is easier than a, a pressing concern. Uh, but it's great because so I in the and like the big thing that they admit is that Mortimer is the one who gave them up. Mortimer mm-hmm. is the one who gave them up. He was just like, yeah, I don't know, guys, and he gave himself them up to Henry V, and that's why Henry V spared him. It was like, okay, all right, you behaved, so you live. All these other people die. And then, and it's so funny. So this play was written in 1599, about 10 years, give or take, after Henry VI, Part One. Yes. Uh, I'm I'm doing a bit of work. Uh, I'm working on a, a piece actually about Henry VI, Part Three. So I went back and I started. I revisited the Henry VI uh, trilogy, and even when we were reading it back in the summer, I completely missed the connection between the Mortimer speech and Henry VI, Part One, and the Richard Cameron. So in Henry VI Part One, Mortimer tells York this whole long story about his father, Richard Cambridge, about how the man he was and how he was betrayed by Henry V and because he believed in in Mortimer and and it's so funny just to see these two sides of the same story ten years mm-hmm. ten years long. And it's also well, you know, skewed history, but yeah. Absolutely. Well, and what you touched on earlier for when we get to the Henry VI cycle for Richard II of the entire time and Henry VI Part Three is like, well, he gave up the crown willingly. No, he didn't. (laughs) And Richard II, there's no clarity on that issue. Yeah. At least there's some continuity there. That's good. And so what you said earlier, and that's always... Personally, when I read it in, in college, Henry V in college, I, we didn't read Richard II and the other and the Henry IV duology. So I came in just reading Henry V, and my reading was like, why are why are these poor people in here except for for comic relief? And like these references to Falstaff were just like, I feel like I'm missing something. I had the exact same experience. This was my first, well, this was my first Shakespeare history. This was the first one I read out of the, the Henry Dad. I had the most passing knowledge of who Falstaff was. Um, and, and so, yeah, there's, this play works as a solo play. And, and that's why the movie versions that do work. Like, yeah. And the Brennan, they do work and they're successful. And you can absolutely watch them or read this play without having read any of the rest. But of course, there is there's so much that more that you gain um, by by reading the rest. Absolutely, 100%. Just like Richard the Third and all the all the Henry the Sixth plays. Yes. So, I mean, I love that Olivier includes in in his movie like the audience getting rowdy at the mention of Falstaff and then being like boo at the, when it's like nope, he's not in this play. <laughs> And, but only in the Hollow Crown does it really feel like wonderfully like they're just tying loose ends. And, yes. And it feels like the conclusion of that arc of of saying the death of Falstaff. And by gosh, because like I know who Falstaff is, that's the one that affects me the most. Of just like, and this weird thing. And Julie Walters does a great job delivering Mistress Quickly's eulogy to him, of that 
it's just this weird thing about Falstaff of that he's you're an ass, you're a grifter, but somehow I still kind of like you, and I feel kind of bad that you died. And that's well, he's he is the lovable grifter. That's that's the success of Falstaff. We talked about yes. that last time, and yes. and I agree. And as I said way back when, um, there is there is a reason why Olivier and and Brenna had to shoehorn flashbacks because they didn't have the three episodes, sorry, two episodes of the Hollow Crown to. Uh, to support that moment that only exists because of it. Um, and yeah, that's, that's one of those. I, yeah. I loved of the, of those two. I love that. They really actually give a scene of Robbie Coltrane as Falstaff and give some of his Falstaff's best lines. Is that who that was? Oh, well. Yeah, it was that's, Hagrid and he looks yeah. fairly similar to Hagrid actually. I, that is true. Sorry, I didn't pick up on that. That's <laughs> no, all good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was good. I, I'm, I'm, and I like how he did it. But again, it just it speaks to you need to do something to make this play work, to make those scenes work as a in this standup yes. play. Well, and I agree because as as impactful as Brana does, he does a great job to make seeing Bardolph be hung really impactful. It's just still not as impactful as having been around Bardoff for four hours before and then seeing him hung. And you get a flashback, too, but that flashback is even more of just a gut punch because it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I kind of liked Bardoff. And it's like, oh, that stinks. And that was a great moment for, for Hiddleston because that was the only... You know, King Henry is not around during any of the Falstaff scenes. That's his only direct connection with Hal, essentially, with his former life, is mm-hmm. being told that Bardoff was hung. Uh, and, and so he had a just a great moment of, of continuity there. But it's not just that. I think his his discussion with Pistol and Pistol rejecting Hal when he... Henry, when he says that he is a kinsman of Flewellen, that's basically his past rejecting him. Is it? And I like that. I didn't get that. <laughs> well, I, I kind of got that of like the way it's played. It's not it's not as much for comedy as it is in the other ones. A pistol being angry at that. Yeah. Like, he, he, just, he, he just walks away in a huff the minute he says like he's a kinsman. He's like, oh, screw you then. And then yeah. just walks away. And this is so. This is my complete wild theory that has only tangential basis. That pistol should have been false stuff. So imagine that scene, but it's false stuff, not recognizing Henry, and how impactful that would have been. Because unless I'm mistaken, pistol and, and Hal have no scenes together in, in Henry the Fourth Part Two. Um, like they they have no relationship at all. Mm-hmm. So there's no continuity there between Henry and, and pistol. But if that was if that were Falstaff, which yes. in theory that pistol's part in Henry V was written for Falstaff, yeah. Falstaff, just the cowardly soldier essentially. Um, yeah, if that were Falstaff, then that scene would have been fantastic, <laughs> uh, and it would have been completely different, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but, well, but then. Up, I just want to to jump on a, yet another tangent about Flewellen and this. I was thinking about, you know, there's a lot of reasons why for me the Brana one stands out, but my God, Flewellen in that in that movie is he's the heart of the movie. Like in a lot of I love Flewellen as a character probably more than I should. Um, 
and and in some ways he is the heart of of the that side of the play of the the camp mm. um yeah and i don't know the hollow crown i don't have any of the actors unfortunately on me now uh basically Bra- uh, olivier basically cuts him um no, actually not. That's not true. Olivier, no, no, no. He he includes oh. the resolution of he, he Llewellyn. Did. He's the only one that ha- does right. of the leak uh, scene. Yeah. Uh, Brana does part of the leak scene, uh, but he cuts most of it. Um, uh, well, yeah, all he does is just pistol vowing to be a grifter. Yes. <laughs> uh, but oh, the actor who plays Llewellyn, so I'm trying to pull up the name now, is in Brana's version, is so good. And that scene with him and uh, him and Henry in uh, in Act Four, the you know Henry's I'm a Welshman, you know, um, scene. I love that, and that the two are just hanging out and crying. Oh. And oh, oh, I, you, so you're good. thinking of Ian Holm. Ian Holm. As... No, is it? Oh shoot, it is. Yes, yeah, that's I Ian Holm. Start... That's Bilbo Baggins. Yes, it yeah. is. Clearly, I suck at recognizing actors. Okay, well... well they're all the... very younger versions of the actors. It's like not recognizing Christian Bale. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, that is like the, the most surprising thing. It's so hard to forget, like, Christian Bale was once a Disney star. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it is Ian Holm. Ian Holm, his performance is, is one of my favorites in that movie, next to Henry, uh, next to Brown as Henry. Well, I'm glad you liked the Hollow Crown really spoiled it. They they cut that whole scene pretty much. Um, well, and he's just portrayed much more as a straight character. Yeah, they they cut everything that makes Flewellen Flewellen. He is he's almost like the 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 character of the fool and and more like the the new Shakespeare fool, the the Dogberry elbow mm-hmm. type fool uh, of he pretends to be smarter than he is uh yes. he's really intelligent uh, but he even more so than than dogberry and i love dogberry uh he has i don't know he's just like i said he's the heart of that section of the play <laughs> and so yeah. i don't know that's also where shakespeare gets out his as you've observed in in several of our podcasts gets out his his issues with with non-english people Yes, but Henry V does it differently. So, and, and I think that it maybe, and again, reading too much into this, it really shows that idea of Henry V as opposed to the fourth being the unifier rather than the civil war king. Uh, because there's that scene which I think might be in the Olivery one. It's definitely in the Brana. Holocron cuts it, where it's Gower, Fluell, and uh, Jamie and McMorris just all. Even though they kind of crap on Mac Morris, they're all just hanging out, and it's yeah. so you got your only English... Olivier included that scene. Only <laughs> Olivier. Oh really? Yeah, it's not in Brana's. I'm pretty damn sure it's not. I think part of it. They might they might have cut them. Out. You're right. Sorry. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I love that. I guess that works well for the the propaganda like go UK uh, Olivier version. It's literally the the Irish, the Scottish, the English, and the Welsh just. The brothers in arms. <laughs> well, well, I do love, even though the league scene is often cut, in Olivier, I, I understood the, the, the main point drawn. And that's actually, for Shakespeare, who doesn't have the best record with depicting kind of the other, other British Isles people, for him to end on saying, like, yeah, you, 
of just pissed of just saying like pistol you thought because he talked funny that he was dumb but he wasn't dumb and you're the idiot now eat this vegetable <laughs> yeah uh yeah i that's actually a nice message that's actually yeah, like oh i like that i still hate act five for this play um <laughs> And, and I'm going to get into it, and just as we kind of, I guess, draw towards the the endings, uh, we can we can loop in that into and actually bring Catherine into this thing. Um, okay. Um, so, so but before we do that, we must talk about each performance of the speeches. Okay. So there's I two legendary speeches in Henry V that he gets. Possibly three, although the the middle one is a little bit less fun it's a bit more on the creepy side that that one olivier omits everything except for one line in it oh his uh his speech to the the governor parkler yes okay yeah it is so we get once more onto the breach and so once more on the onto the breach for olivier and each time he does this and saint crispin's it's fascinating because it begins with a close-up and then tracks back and back and back. And so we feel like we are the audience being more and more aroused until by the end we, of the final line of God, St. George. Oh, you, you know what I mean. I think it's God, Henry, and St. George. Or God, Henry, Henry and St. George. I'm just, you're ready to charge. And that's yeah. the way that... Olivier handles it of just the rousing speeches are just clear, wonderful, rousing speeches. Yeah. And it's it's like, yeah, we retreated, but let's go back. Come on. We can do it. Woo! That's the way he handles it, the noble Henry V. And what you touch on earlier of Brana, of the uglier side, the grimier, warmongery aspects, once more onto the breach is much more fanatical. In, oh, and just in the smack in the middle of the battle, whereas Olivier is more removed from it. Yes. Um, and then when we, we... So that's an interesting reading, and I love that too. There's no bad version of this, mind you. No. Although when we get to St. Crispin's, I I have a bit to say about about Henry the, about the Hollow Crown, just because it's the most interesting take. But... That's one word for it. <laughs> the, the, the way it's spoken... And the way that they handle pretty much everything in the Hollow Crown, partially I think it's due to budget, but they get creative with the budget constraints for this for the Hollow Crown. Shark is is all of Henry V's speeches by Hiddleston are so smaller. Yeah. And they're much more individual. And once more onto the breach is interesting in, in that it's a bit of a pep rally. Just this quiet, like, to individuals, and he does that later with St. Crispin's Day. It's it's just like, okay, you, 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 we can do this, we can do this, we can do this. Once more onto the breach. It, it still rouses you, but it's like it's it's not as – it's in, in a way defanging Henry V and making him – Again, a little bit more closer to Hal of just being this kind of personal king and not this kind of big lofty 
ideal of a king. I I would agree with that, and yeah, I thought that um, with with one once more to the reach that I don't know for me in the holocron maybe there was too much going on because they did the same thing that that Brianna did was just said it. it Olivier, the focus was just on Henry, and that's all that was happening. Um, Brane had it backed by essentially the siege, and and so did uh, Hollow Crown. Um, but on, as you're saying, because Hiddleston was so much more, so much quieter, it just seemed to be drowned out, and, and it really, there wasn't really much there in. Uh, and I find that pretty much for most of Hiddleston's big speech moments, um, yeah, he's not. It's not big on speeches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I will say, and to disagree with you, though, the, the siege of the, the speech he gives to to the governor, that is him. That's him being almost Olivier of being on a horse and, and threatening and commanding. Yeah. And you see the, the steel in him. And this is where the there is a big difference is that hit for for Brana's speech to the governor that's a bluff it is 100% a bluff and he emphasizes when he, once he gets in like be merciful be merciful like don't don't be cruel to the french at all Hiddleston does the same though but I, Hiddleston I... says that but but the way he delivers it it's just this cold matter of fact, like, if you don't surrender, this is what's going to happen. And he's much more just nonchalant about it. Just like, just like, be merciful. All right. He's saying that almost like it's just blasé of just be merciful. It's not this kind of, where Brana, it's like a desperate command. I can see that. And maybe it speaks to, I, I personally buy into it, which is why I like Brenna's version, but I can see why people would find it off-putting that Brenna's Henry V is far more theatrical. Um, oh, yes. Even ironically more so than Olivier's um, at times. And <laughs> especially in that speech, I can see where you're saying that it's a bluff because it is a bit more over-the-top, whereas, yeah, especially in that moment, uh, I would probably give that to Hiddleston because <laughs> it probably calls for a bit more... Uh, steel is a good word for it, just coldness and yeah, hard-heartedness. Yeah. And then, of course, yeah, uh, <laughs> Olivier just says, you going to surrender? Okay, cool. Because <laughs> uh, that Henry V does not threaten anyone. <laughs> well, but, uh, let's ooh, jump to Christmas uh, then. Actually, I want to go a slight tangent. We, we touched on the French, but I want to touch on the French again. Interesting interpretation of, of each one has the for what they go for the, for the French. In terms of both the British propaganda, but also a little bit cl- closing in its closer read of the text. And to slightly compliment myself, I had the kind of the same idea that I think Char- that Olivier had in terms of how to approach the French king, Charles VI, of basically the actor playing Charles VI, he is doing Henry VI. He's playing this weak, effete, indecisive king. 
Yeah, I think the Hollow Crown does that well as well. Uh, same kind of deal. I don't think so. He just strikes me as just like just just like a regular king, like kind of like older and just like, eh, yes. And the, the same with Bronov, just like yes. Uh, what is England doing? Hmm, I think he's a bit more serious of a threat, son. But okay. I like. He's uh, quite frankly the. He leaves more of an impression, is what I'm saying. That's in fair. Being this kind of like pathetic king, and it actually does touch on the only point I'll ever give Olivier for being more historically accurate. Shakespeare never portrays Charles VI as as stark raving mad as he was in real life. But pretty much all the historians now generally agree that Henry VI, Charles VI's madness was passed on to his grandson, Henry VI. Hmm. Which is not too far of a stretch to imagine. And luckily it seemingly didn't pass on to uh, the Tudor kids of Princess Catherine. Uh, but that's a whole other discussion. Right. Sorry, yeah. I'm trying to that, that, yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So the... So that's... um. But on the other side, to praise Brana, the best of the... Of the Dauphins was definitely Brana's Dauphin. Yes. Brana's Dauphin was like kind of a hotspur of just this hot-headed, yeah. temperamental buffoon. That's a great foil to Brana's Henry. Of Brana's Henry is is calm, collected, decisive. This cold, icy warrior god, and the Dauphin is this this hot-headed idiot. This temp pestuous, impetuous, feckless it fool. It's sad that we never actually get a scene between the two of them. Yeah. <laughs> that. Uh, well, actually, at the same time, though, the, that the way that they go for the kind of almost gay, but certainly campy Dauphin in Olivier's is also a perfect foil for the right, good, perfect Christian medieval knight Olivier goes for. Yeah, the French were, and then Olivier's were more buffoon, and and I think it really worked for, I agree with you, that it really worked for Charles, but the rest of the French were just your standard, like, slapstick comedy. Yeah, ineffectual villains. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The Holocron humanized them the most, probably, um, even though they cut a bunch of the scenes. Um, But I agree that Dauphin was definitely the best in in Brenna. Mm -hmm. Well, now you're making me think of... uh... Okay, I'll reference it now. Netflix is the king. And even everyone who hates the movie, everyone agrees the best part of the movie is Robert Pattinson as the Dauphin, who just gives this five-minute scene-chewing performance as this utterly crazy, utterly brutal, nutty chewing some scenery performance as the Dauphin in in that movie. Although I warned Alex like that. Okay. The dumb twist at the end of the movie is it, it turns out the 
basic exeter of the play, Sir William Gascoigne, tricked Henry V in that movie to to go to war with France. He came up with the ball. He came up with all these things to trick Henry V into going to war with France. Okay. That's the big twist at the end, is the whole war was based on a lie. <laughs> and the scene well, with Princess Cat- Catherine is in English, and she says, like, did you ever think about this? Did you really think my father insulted you? And yeah, my brother was an idiot, but he didn't do what you think he did. <laughs> I don't know, was someone working on the movie French? It's like, I gotta redeem this this thing. <laughs> God, the English looks stupid now. Haha. Aha. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, my history with that movie so far is I watched five minutes of it and I don't know. Maybe I was just in a really bad mood that day. But <laughs> not. I couldn't do it. <laughs> it's a loose adaptation of Shakespeare. Yeah. And it wasn't even, it wasn't even that it bothered me as a loose adaptation of Shakespeare. I'm, I used to be very sour on those and I've, I've mellowed out as far as my Shakespeare purity. It just seemed like such a stupid movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'll give it another chance when I'm not so bitter. <laughs> well, I don't know. That might be a fun get back together just to for you to vent if you want. <laughs> uh, so even though I've quote unquote ruined the movie for you. Yeah, that's fair. I, but that doesn't alter it that much. Yeah. So the the French, yeah, there's varieties the hollow crown french were the ones that made the least of an impression on me in any way well, just, like, like, the, most of the hollow crown they were just the most straightforward there was nothing yeah. there was no clear direction for them and and if you look at the play itself um so so for the the audience uh we we do readings uh of of shakespeare plays as part of our, our group and uh due to numbers this week we did an abridged version of henry v and i within a couple of seconds without thinking too much about it picked out what should be considered the key scenes and realized after it's like i cut out all the french scenes (laughs) because that's how the play is set up there's there's a quite a few scenes that we get from the french perspective and in retrospect there's one i would have added if i thought more than a few seconds about it and that's that is the scene with the French court and the Dauphin basically saying Henry is just this weak kid and being told otherwise. And that's, that's the only impactful French scene we have. The other ones, the play doesn't give us much to do. We have a a scene at the French camp, which is supposed to be the, the really impactful one, but instead you just get the French bragging about their armor and the Duke of Orleans implying he likes horse stuff. Yeah. (laughs) And then you get a couple yeah. during the, the battle scenes, you have the French essentially as the stereotypical we are French cowards run away scene. So yeah, the, the play Shakespeare was not kind to the French for sure in this one. What? You're telling me that the the play that all the author that wrote a wrote Joan of Arc as a, <laughs> as a witch would you not bet. portray the French in a flattering way? Yes, the French come across better here than they do in Henry VI Part One for sure. Um, so the whole crown was kind of trying to play it more straight rather than the goofy villains or the um, insane villains of Brana's. Um, and yeah, but it's they don't leave much of an impact because there's not much in the text to give them. Mm-hmm. True enough. 
Except Montjoy. I love that guy. <laughs> well, I will say also, again, defending what I said before, it was that the one idea they go for is that the Dauphin just knows about the Prince Haldays, and that's why he he is bold about dismissive of Henry V. And Exeter emphasizing, yeah, I know. I know you heard about those days, but you'll be as surprised as we are about King Harry. And that was played extremely well, mainly yeah. by Exeter there. Um, but that's yeah, seemed- lesser being amazing, but yeah. And it's it's all that, and this uh, supports your, your theory for the hologram, that scene is, that moment is so much more about Henry than it is about the Dauphin. Uh, that doesn't yes. really tell us anything about him as a character. And he has like what one scene after that. Um, he's, yeah. he's, he's not Hotspur. Like he's not, we don't get to see his perspective. Um, we, we don't see him go through fatal flaws. Exactly. He's not. Uh, the only much. fatal flaw is that there is that this, the French are just so overconfident to like that. They're just gladly waiting to win. It's like, ah, oh, when will it be day? And everyone's just bragging him. I got the best armor. I got the best horse. Yeah. No, he has more than the best horse. <laughs> anyway, um, it's yeah. an odd scene. Yeah. Even so, uh, you, you brought up earlier the the speech Henry gives to the governor of Harfleur, and after that, you know, violent, let me in or I'll rape your women and destroy your city speech. Um, yeah, the governor basically says, "Yeah, we called for help, but the Dauphin abandoned us." <laughs> it's just that's that's the French in this play. <laughs> just, yeah. yeah. So they're they're not given the best, um, which is why Bran and Olivia had to do something with them. Yeah. So Saint Crispin's Day. Yeah, let's, let's stop with that. Only behind to be or not to be as the most famous speech by Shakespeare. I would disagree with that, but that's semantics. <laughs> now is a winter very discontent. Tomorrow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, those are up there, but well, <laughs> I mean, we're all agreed to be or not to be still, but yeah. Yes. <laughs> For sure. It's to be or not to be. Who are we kidding? Either way, so. Like I said before, I love the the technique that that they do in each of them. I will admit, of the three, none of them may actually, in, in some ways, Olivier actually does build up the dread enough to to where like, oh man, we're about to lose, and then he gets the speech, and it is this the most rousing of rousing speeches ever. Yeah, I do love this. <laughs> the funny part about the Olivia one, and I do love his, his rendition of the speech, but it's, you know, we we few, we happy few pan out a giant group <laughs> surrounding Yeah, <him>. yes, <laughs> that is a fair point. That is a fair point. In the context, it's completely justified because it's like we are outnumbered five to one. Yeah, I just, I think Brown at least, and Hiddleston have captured the small band of brothers better but uh but olivia does a great job of uh, yeah the the speech really builds it begins with um westmoreland yeah complaining yeah. about how they are so outnumbered and henry 
chastising them, saying they're going to die, but they're going to be remembered, and it just builds up. Yes. And, and Olivier definitely captures that the best. Well, Olivier, in, in tracking back, it's also him getting bigger and bigger and louder and louder until the speech is gigantic and, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers! Yeah, and that was a trailer shot. You watch the trailer, that was that was used in it, and it was definitely created as a trailer shot. Like, this, and, is, this is how we sell this propaganda film. I mean, unsurprisingly, I mean, it's worth noting that that the day before D-Day, the British soldiers watched this movie. Eh, makes sense. Yeah. So, just note, worth noting. The I'm sure they, I doubt it, but maybe a couple British soldiers said, God, Harry and St. George. <laughs> so, the... You, and you can feel that, whereas Brana and you again another Brana Olivier tribute, like Olivier makes this big speech of where he's walking and then he goes up to the cart so everyone can see him as he makes this speech, and Brana kind of does that too where he gives the speech on a cart. But the interesting choice is one, it's a close up. Yeah. So you don't see the men being roused up. And you also get music in the background that swells as until you get to on St. Crispin's Day finale. It's at a crescendo, and that's wonderful. And it's still wonderful, rousing speech. In some ways, I think the biggest thing that I, I admire about Brana's that makes it even more inspirational is he flat out is right after that Montjoy shows up and and like says well are you come on do you want to be ransomed or not it's like no i am not going away i'm not ransoming the only thing i will you will ransom from me is my bones yeah and he's pissed like out of all the between him and hills and uh brenna brenna again sells the anger really well and even in that the speech Comparing, because Hiddleston does the same kind of close-up. I'm pretty sure it has almost essentially the same music cue. Uh, it's it does seem I, I didn't notice much difference between Hiddleston and Brennan's, um, except for the intensity of it. Uh, and and yeah, Brennan again sells that the emotion of the speech maybe too much. I don't know. <laughs> it's possible, but I like you fighting words and. Hiddleston's okay. Uh, I'll say is my least favorite. Yeah, I don't. But it's uh, but it is also the most interesting. Is it? In ter- or, or, or in terms of just like I've never seen it that way. I've never imagined it that way. That's such a different reading. Because Olivier and Rana's are more kind of like standard what you'd expect from that speech. Of this is the most inspiring, awe-inspiring speech ever done. It's the rousing speech to end all rousing speeches. And it's made before an army. In contrast, it's just b- between his officers. And Eagle, or the most laser-focused Shakespearean scholar's note, he only really references, and theoretically, he's only rousing up his his officers in that speech. And so that's not exactly textually off 
is he just wants to rouse his officers. Um, Although he changes the names. I noticed that because I, I rewatched the Holocron right after we did the reading yesterday. Uh, Holocron changes the names, which makes okay. more sense. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's uh, I, I agree with you that again, you know, Henry, the, the only ones that matter are the, the nobles in this play. Yeah. 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 The base could be more gentle, but their names are not familiar. They're not West. Actually, Westmoreland doesn't get named in the text. Uh, Warwick, Salisbury, Talbot. Um, yeah, who's not even in the play, but whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I guess that. So textually, sure, it makes sense, but it also doesn't <laughs> because yeah. you know it's. If it's just the officers, then the the saying that he that sheds this day will be my brother, and you will all be gentlemen. Yeah. Is is like, but we're already gentlemen. But even so, what happens right after you have you know Montjoy comes in, and then you have essentially Henry saying to Westmoreland, "Do you still wish we had more people?" And it's like, "I wish it was just the two of us." And that doesn't work in the the Hale's version because there's nothing rousing about the the speech. It's just okay. Um, so I don't know for me it falls completely flat as a moment um, and then it's it's overtaken by the actual battle and then immediately after that just to follow through with the thread you have um, the scene kind of after the battle uh, killed the boys in the luggage with Fluen and Gower Henry shows up and he says I was not angry since I came to France until now Brown just led to he just gives it there and then he basically attacks Montjoy when he comes back. Yes. It'll just like I was never angry till now. It's like well, I get he's playing the grounded version and at times it works, but at times it doesn't. <laughs> well, this, is this is actually a key difference. So for each one and and again the central thesis and what they want to do, what each film wants to do. In Olivier the sacking of the baggage boys. He he gives that line. I did not hate the French until now, because up until this point the French have been ineffectual villains. But now it's like, oh no, wait a minute, this is war crimes. And then he gets the climactic duel with the with a French knight in black, with with Olivier on a white horse in shining, good coated armor, and he wins this amazing duel against his opponent he gives a he henry v gets one big awesome final battle in olivier's film brana following closer to the text that's when he then does the the unthinkable of ordering which he historically did of ordering the execution of the french soldiers right french prisoners this is actually the most controversial decision i think for the hollow crowns henry the fifth is they don't really include that they don't include the execution of the baggage boys and in fact they include his decision to execute the prisoners the french prisoners but it's from the fact that he hears that the duke of york is dead you're right that was after yes it is like that gets him angry and that's what he, he that's when he says like i did not hate the french until then and then he says kill the french prisoners and in contrast, also Hiddleston being Hiddleston is like genuinely confused and just like I don't know who won. 
like who won this day and Montreux is like you did oh okay whereas as you said Bron is like furious when that happens yeah and, and I don't know for me and again it's it's everything about that like those few scenes between St. Crispin's Day and you know, what is that castle called it's called Agincourt you have the battle in all three of them, and the Hollow Crown wins that race because of technology. Let's be honest. Um, I don't know. I, I you like Olivier's? I, I like I like Olivier's. I like Olivier's looks pretty damn amazing, and to see the 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 uh, the heavy caval heavy armored cavalry, and to actually have the cavalry have those wonderful like uh, colorful drapes on them as well on the horses and to have that build up of all them horses galloping on that's old hollywood epic and i love that that's great building that's fair i can get behind that (laughs) and Uh, then to see like the hail of arrows and them getting although the muck, the sheer muck in the Hollow Crown one in particular is great of like, that's what Ashencore was. It was just this utter mess of a battle mm-hmm. where the French basically just slipped on the mud and the English just eviscerated them. It's just amazing. Yeah, and, and again, I think that the Hollow Crown was maybe relying a bit too much on that as the centerpiece. And so the, the actual dialogue fell by the wayside Whereas the uh, Brenna probably had the, I guess maybe the weakest of the three battle scenes, but both I think um, Brenna and and uh, Ian Holmes as Fluellen in that scene, their acting carries the spirit of the scene. What it be in the intensity uh, is is so much more carried through the dialogue than the visuals. Yeah. Yeah. And then, well, we didn't get. We'll get to the final twist in the Hollow Crown for and for what they want to do, but for what they did. But then what they do, and again a little tribute, and I don't remember this being in the play. Remind me if it is, but in Olivier introduced the idea that they sing us they sing a a hymn in, in yeah. Latin after the battle. Is that in the They're- play? Include the song in the play, but that the lines there sing. Uh, I can't remember what the actual line is, but basically we'll sing an ave and then to Paris and then to England. Um, and both, both. <laughs> this is going. I'm going to go on a tiny rant here. But Olivier and Brown do this, where they have that that final Henry speech. Uh, Olivier, they have the song. Brown, they also have the song much longer. In Olivier, they have the song, and then it cuts to black, as you do yes. at the end of the 1940s movie. In Brano's, they do the song. There's a, fa- a camera uh, zoom out. We get the, the fields, and it, even a camera pan out, and you're expecting them to go to credits. And, and the Olivier one, it's like it fades to black, and there's a good maybe five seconds of just, oh, okay, cool, good, because it's a perfect end. It's like, and then to England, music, yeah, black. <laughs> And then we're back with a bunch of friggin' Flewellen and Pistol and the Leak scene in, in the Olivier, and then in the um, in the Brana, it's just that awkward transition between, you know, this fade, and then 
I think it's Derek Jacoby comes back and it's like, but then Henry had to go back to France. Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, it is such a so in the play in the Shakespeare and this is my criticism of Shakespeare for this one. You have the the build up. You have you know, is it just to go to war? Uh, Henry getting rid of his past. Henry basically the sacrificing of, of men during war. Is he a good man or not? It's his perfect you know thematic play in four acts but the problem is Shakespeare has to have five acts so it ends and he had nowhere else to go and so we get two scenes at the end of the play Um, one is Pistol and Flewellen arguing about leaks and Flewellen putting Pistol in his place and then the last scene is um, the essentially French capitulating to all of Henry's demands followed by Henry awkwardly wooing Catherine Catherine, who appears in one scene of the play, which, again, is very out of place. Uh, sorry, one scene before the last scene, which is yes. arbitrary out of place scene. None of the versions cut it. For everything that they, they all cut, they all keep Alice Catherine's scene. Because <laughs> why not? I guess they had to be in there at least at somewhere before the final scene. Yeah. And and so it doesn't work. The Holocron is the only one that actually makes it work, I think. Um, so... <laughs> okay. All right. On a modern writing scale understanding, I completely understand. It does feel like just this tacked on epilogue of the play itself, of the fifth act. It's honestly right there with A Midsummer Night's Dream of that Shakespeare basically ended the play with, oh, well, I'm going to overrule you, Aegeus. The lovers will get married to the, the right partners. And Bottom wakes up. He's like, huh, that was a weird dream. Okay, moving back. And then we just have this, well, we got to see the players do the play. It's like, do we really? Do we? <laughs> yeah. It's like, sure. it's like, it's it's a fun as in like a good showstopper, but like plot wise, like, yeah, the story's over. And like Titania kind of like laughs off the, the prank and then it's like, okay, whatever. Yeah. And that's, the play is over in the fourth act. And yeah, but they, we have to have a fifth act. And so, yes, I understand what you're saying. This one is, and it's even like weird for this great war epic to then end on this in this weird, adorkable rom-com moment is kind of weird <laughs> for yeah. the story. Henry is not, this, this play is completely, the whole tetralogy is devoid of any any romance like even the the york tetralogy had had a lot of it you had yes Ralph yeah. and Margaret, you had richard wooing everything that moves edward <laughs> wooing everything that moves so you had a lot of that you had like the shakespearean romance was built into those plays absolutely and and i made this comment many times that the henriad is not good to women <laughs> party history but you have no great female characters outside of Mistress Quickly, in these plays. And and so, yeah, there's... To suddenly, at the very end of this tetralogy, essentially do a Much Ado-style ending with you know, a, a more awkward Beatrix and uh, Beatrice and, and Benedict, yeah, it, it doesn't work. <laughs> yes. It is so hard to... And it's... I, it's a weird ending. It's a weird ending. I will grant you. I will absolutely. I don't know if I were directing this play. You know, I don't know. I my temptation would be to cut the act, but I don't know if I could because it's so iconic, kind of like the prologue, and it's a very hard thing to to direct. So, 
I'm not faulting any of the, the versions. It's just, it's a very difficult thing to direct. And I, I think the Holocron at least smoothed out the transition between the end of the war and back to France to do the romance scene. So, in both them, and this is the only one where it kind of got a bit annoying to me, where it's like, okay, Brana, I know you love Olivier. Don't copy him word for word sometimes. Where, 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 like, in the middle of of the Duke of uh, Burgundy, I think. Yeah, Burgundy, right? Yeah. Duke of Burgundy's, like, speech imploring them to bring peace back. In Olivier had the middle of that of the urge for peace to have just this panning shot of how war devastated France and shot of some poor peasant children that seemed to be on the suffering side. I think that was like, that's the only thing I will criticize Brana's movie is you don't need that because you already have the, the Ave scene, which is a masterpiece. It's a wonderful agonizing two-minute tracking shot that gets everything you need about the devastation of war and the reality of war and the ugliness of war. Mm -hmm. You don't need this further hammering home the point of like war is bad and peace is good. It's like, no, we already got it. Sir Ken, you don't need to hammer it any further. But I mean, no one will ever accuse Sir Kenneth Branagh of being subtle. No. (laughs) That is fair. That was his problem with Frankenstein. <laughs> and so uh, is he's a very theatrical director and actor. But that's what I love about him. Mm-hmm. And so that's the only part that, like, I, I, I like that they abridge the speech a bit and just in the hollow crown. And it just, it's just getting the wonderful actor who played Uncle Vernon that Harry Potter actor is the one they got for this one. It, getting one. him, gotta have one. And well, the actor who played Fluellen was was their Game of Thrones actor. Right. Yep. And then they had John Hurt, the Doctor Who tie-in. Yeah. Gotta get it all. <laughs> gotta get them all. And so, of just like him imploring them, come on, guys, just resolve the peace, resolve it. And I do like the way that they that also Henry is the one being obstinate of like, no, you got to give all my demands. Yeah. But then I like, and of the three Hiddleston scene is my favorite of that. He and he and Catherine had the best relationship in, in that version. It's genuinely cute. And it's genuinely adorable of just like him, just actually genuinely selling that he's awkward of like, yeah, I'm good at war and rousing people up, but like, he's kind of like, he is just plain spoken. And he's like, and just like that adorable kind of like, I don't know what like is. Uh, you are like an angel. And she just looks at him strange, like, oh, that's a compliment. Like, oh, you're a liar. And but she's, she's into him. Yeah. And like they're they're in and it's this playful flirting and I like that. Kind of a clue to our reading of the play. <laughs> the cast did not think that that scene is very cute. <laughs> our players did not. Well, I do think I, I do think that that play that scene can be very cute if handled well 
as they do in the Hollow Crown. And I think, honestly, with the Olivier version as well, is that it is pretty cute of that of that the theatricality is is a bit more awkward, but at the same time endearing. And it's so weird because Olivier does this kind of scene three times. I've seen Olivier do this scene three times in his filmography. And once it's really, really cute and fun in Henry V, then it's really creepy in, in Richard III, although even in Richard III, his Anne is actually sort of into it. Yeah. And then you get to Spartacus, where it's, no, she is not into it at all, and she's totally grossed out and creeped out by him. <laughs> I don't know, I found, him, I found it very wooden. Like they, he was a bit wooden in that moment. But but I think that... And maybe I that's... What I'm saying, but, but I think that's the whole point, is that he's kind of like... Is like is that like the the same kind of like charm and like rousingness is kind of just a bit weird and clunky here. Yeah. Bronis is the most interesting because like even though they were a married couple at the time, like her Emma Thompson's Kate is not really into him. No, she's like out of you know being the most recognizable actor out of the three Catherine. She uh, not that recognizability means much. Um, no, I don't think she did that part well at all. Um, <laughs> credit, it's two scenes, neither yeah. of which are great, but that's... Well, you don't look, make it up, up with it with, by being the, the best Beatrice ever. <laughs> fair. Um, I like Amy Acker. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's not here nor there. <laughs> the part is, I, I don't think that... I think that Brana had the worst both in how it was handled directorially and the the scene itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his X5, no. <laughs> it's a bit on the... Well, but I, I mean, in stage direction of just praising, and I love what they do, of just how this scene plays out, of Hiddleston really does play, again, like that, that Hal shows up. Of that one minute, he's King Henry, but when he's wooing Cat, he is Hal. And to show how much he is Hal, and he is just this this simple king, he takes off his crown and just woos him, woos Kate as a man. And he, and really selling home the point of that scene is that, look, I know you're my prize of war, technically speaking, but I want you to like me. I I don't want this to be just like this political marriage. I want this to be a love marriage. Yeah, I I do. I think he sold it well. Uh, sorry, I was just I was just looking up uh, who the holocron Catherine was. Okay. No one. Uh, she didn't have anything of note except for she was in the movie Legend of 1900, which oh. shout out to that movie. It's one of my favorite movies that nobody has heard of. I've uh, never heard of it. It is so good. Uh, look up Legend of 1900. It's amazing. <laughs> and she was in that. Okay. But to finish with the epilogues. Okay, yes. So, key again to propaganda. <laughs> the big kind of illusion and wham line and how Shakespeare admits, like, yeah, this is kind of misleading ending. He, <laughs> Olivier's does not include the fact that, oh, yeah, by the way, we lost all of France. Yep. Like King Henry VI lost France. But I also love that transition just after the marriage you suddenly zoom back to the globe theater you're back in the globe to give the applause 
and you're like the audience, you do want to give out an applause. And then you see suddenly the the actress playing Kate is now an actor playing Kate. That's fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. The the framing device really works for the Olivia. And again, back to structure being the for me the highlight of that. Absolutely. And I do agree and I understand what you mean by that. Yeah, it is something really special. And just really interesting. It's kind of an art movie. I do mean that sincerely. Yes, it's World War II propaganda, but it's also an art movie. It's interesting. You never really expect that for Henry V, I'd say. Because it is a big, glorious spectacle play. But again, it's it's so constructed, and it's... I mean, that it's... It is very artificial, everything about it as a play, um, compared to... You know, just as, as Richard II is lyrical, this one has uh, this also has its own artifice compared to the two Henry the Fourth, which are much more straightforward as pieces of theater. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm looking okay right now at the actress playing Princess Kate for the Hollow Crown. I'll give them this. It's nice they actually chose a French actress to play Princess <laughs> Catherine, <laughs> which all the other ones didn't. Maybe that's why she's able to sell it more. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. She is definitely French, which is nice. Yeah. So, uh, and the epilogue. So each epilogue is interesting. And yeah, just go back to reminding you, hey, remember this was an artificial story, so we're back in Globe Theater for Olivier. Derek Jacobi's is very somber because they he does include the we lose everything by we I mean the English lose everything yes. and it's Absolutely. it's just it's very down like it's and yay they're married peace reigns hooray Henry V died and his son lost everything yes <laughs> and then closing it yeah yeah but then like just as he opened the door and welcomed you all in then he closes it. Yeah, again, so the Brano framing device, extremely simple, but I, I like it. it. It works for what it is. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, honestly, to give credit where credit's due, just hearing the epilogue, it made me want to, first time I ever heard it, was like, wait, how'd that happen? How do you lose all that? It, it was pretty interesting. I do love also in that, in the epilogue, just from a Shakespeare praising, of that kind of wink to the audience of like, you've already seen the Henry the Sixth cycle, right? Huh? Huh? Sure you know. Yeah. And after watching these, I watched all three of these uh, back, the subject the the week before Christmas, uh, slash just after, and it did make me just like, oh, I gotta go rewatch Henry the Sixth part one now. (laughs) (laughs) So I did. Uh, Uh, That'd be a really interesting, because obviously you group the Henry ad together and you group the York trilogy type, there you know, the three Henry the Sixth plays together. But I think it would be interesting if I were to ever direct a double play, I would do Henry the Fifth and Henry the Sixth Part One. Ooh. <laughs> interesting. Just that, that I mean the the histories though each of those tetralogies are are amazing because they're Shakespeare had very different stages in his career. Like one where he's at the beginning of his craft and when he's at the arguable zenith of his craft. Yep. And also what he's covering and what he gives to the audience. We, we, we touched on how Richard II is basically trolling the audience, whereas I would argue and think I was thinking about this earlier today. It was like Henry VI Part Three. He gives the audience everything they want in that play. 
of you want war, you want blood, you want intrigue, you want adultery. I'm going to give it all. I yeah. gave it all. It's all there. <laughs> like, whereas Richard the Second's like, oh, nope, nope. You're not getting any of that. Like, what? Yep, sorry. <laughs> and so the epilogue, though, is the most, and then it ties up the framing device and looking at how just after you have that wonderful scene of Kate, then you get the epilogue of you're back in Henry V's funeral. And I noticed this time, I was like, oh, the lighting suddenly is more muted and it's much more darker and somber compared to everything you've just seen in the movie of that the light has gone out with Henry V. And then the revelation that Henry V, that the chorus is Falstaff's boy. Yeah, that was... <laughs> That's a fun touch. That's a fun it's... touch. Yeah, no, I mean, who else would it have been? <laughs> well, just no one like it is in all the other ones. But it's nice that it's an actual character in the, who experienced it. And it also... But I think what they I like that they do with the epilogue is really emphasize by including it with the framing device of that Henry V's funeral. I'm just emphasizing how brief Henry V's reign was and how this flash in the pan it was for England. I really like that reading. I think you're giving them more credit than they deserve, but I really like that <laughs> reading of it. Like, I, I'd be surprised if that's what they were going for. Um, but yeah, you sold me on that. Uh, and again, I, I like the framing device uh, for the hologram. I, I do like that. Well, I thought like the first time I ever saw it, I was like, whoa, wow, okay, all right, this is what we're getting into. Where it's yeah, like, I, remember, I remember the first time I saw it, I assume it's, it opens with a funeral, and I assumed it was Henry IV, um, just <laughs> kind of build back continuity, and then they show the coffin, and it's like, oh, wait, nope. <laughs> <Whoa>. Wrong king. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's interesting. And so that's a... F- fabulous finale and so each is making their own statement on what they want to talk about for henry v they're all phenomenal films this isn't like romeo and the juliet see them all yes the takeaway from this is if you've watched all three of these maybe not back to back to back i wouldn't know don't be like us but each one brings something so different in in a great way and there's no uh, there's no doubt, except maybe the king, but I'll get back to you on that one. <laughs> uh, lastly, I just wanted to talk a little bit because, again, this is uh, the first time I've ever been able to talk about Olivier and Brana. I wrote this little list thinking of the comparisons of everyone made once Olivier. So talk a little bit of this, what happened after this for both of these great, great actors and directors is this was basically the launching pad for their major consciousness into more than just the theater crowds and that Olivier um, would go on to direct two more Shakespeare movies so I did the math and the tallying up we have seven recorded Olivier Shakespeare performances the one that no one remembers as you like it. Henry oh, V. 
Hamlet, Richard the Third, Othello, and oh, by the way, like Othello, Merchant of Venice, and King Lear were more TV productions, but we have them. They're on record. Yeah. They are available for us for all of posterity. Othello may be the one that's kind of a bit on the dicey side now because he's kind of awkward. Yeah. Awkward. Which is unfortunate because it's actually a very good adaptation besides this. Yes. Um, yeah. It's always bad when that happens. So we have, in contrast, we have five Kenneth Branagh performances in Shakespeare recorded. He directed in Brana's cat in Brana's credit. He directed more Shakespeare films than Shakespeare films, not plays. I don't know what what the record is for that. Then uh, Olivier, he directed five. Although, to be a little bit honest, <laughs> like only three are really good. Yeah, don't. I have, yet to, I have yet to see Love's Labor's Lost. Oh, all right, that'll be our next podcast together. Let's let's do Brown's Love Labor's Lost. It is, uh, it's interesting. Unlike his As You Like It, which is just boring and, and useless. That's At least fine. It's, it, Love's it, Labor's it's, As You Like It's fine. It's just like yeah. it's just a. It just he does the best with not that great material, quite see, frankly. I, Completely deserve. I love that play, and he throws it away. Um, but at least he makes a statement with Love Lears Lost. It's not good, but it's a statement. <laughs> okay. So we have – so the five Kenneth Branagh performances we have for him as Shakespeare, Henry V, Much Ado About Nothing, Hamlet, and – wait, did I count that right? Yep. And Love's Labor's Lost, yeah. So like those it. are the five. Uh, well, no, he didn't. He he's not in as you like it. Oh, sorry, I thought you were talking about directorial. Oh, I I I I didn't include Othello. He's in Othello, and yes. that's one of his. That may be his best performance as Iago. Mm, I would still give it to him, but very good. Uh, he is an excellent Iago. Yes. And he he plays the appropriate character to play for for him, Iago. <laughs> <laughs> no duh, no yeah. real shade to Olivier. It was different times. Yeah. Yeah. Just... Also, like the, the thing that I'm gonna mildly grumble out there is <clears throat> there is a recording out there of of several like stage plays he he did. They did record them. They're out there like recorded like the recorded the recorded performance of Hamilton that's but just please somehow figure out the rights to make these available I desperately would love to see his Romeo and Juliet and I would love to see his Winter's Tale and I would love to see his Macbeth also technically it's an audiobook you can find him reading Richard III as Richard III so it's out there and I'd love to check it out someday I, I, thinking about what, where Brana and Olivier's career went, they have a lot of both good and bad parallels. They both got knighted for their, for being great actors, and both unfortunately had commercial flops that interfered with their attempts to get enough money, enough funding for passion projects. 
Olivier's Richard the Third was, even though like now it's hailed as a masterpiece, it was a financial flop. And he never got funding to do another Shakespeare movie after after Richard the Third. Which the bigger shame also, in addition to just it's criminal that he didn't get to do any more Shakespeare films, direct any. He his next one would have been Macbeth, which some people say was his best role. Hmm. So that's annoying, just to me. Um, for Brana, the thing that really torpedoed his career was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Yeah. In more ways than one. It 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 didn't do well commercially or critically. It also ended up causing his marriage to with Emma Thompson to dissolve, which was not good PR. <laughs> and also, like he did get to make Hamlet right after Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, but Hamlet did not make money either. Yeah, it was nominated for Oscars and stuff like that, but it did what? not get make money. And so... His Hamlet is odd, I think because, I don't know, it's probably mostly known for just being the only full version out there. Yes. Um, that's what some... makes it unique and fascinating. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, like, it's, it's very serviceable adaptation of Hamlet. <laughs> serviceable. But, but that's the thing. Like, unlike uh, his, certainly Henry V and, and Much Ado, um, yeah, there's no, there's, it's kind of more like my complaint about the hollow crown, um, Henry V. It's kind of just, it's there uh, without a statement, which, you know, not always the worst thing. Um, but yeah, I never really, uh, it's not, if I have, if I were to sit down and watch a version of Hamlet, that would not be my go-to, unlike his version of Henry V. Mm. Okay. I mean, I'm kind of with you there, but I still love his Hamlet. It's still a great Hamlet. It's uh, great. That's just sure. fine, fine little interesting biography comparisons. Olivier was all but broken by Marilyn Monroe from directing movies in his experience with The Prince and the Showgirl. Though, I think that's a bit of a myth because... He was actually very interested in directing Spartacus at one point. Hmm. He wanted to direct it, but also being Olivier, he also wanted to star as Spartacus. And when Kirk Douglas had said, no, I'm playing Spartacus, he's like, eh, okay. And then I suspect Olivier was just busy with with acting in the theater and directing theater, which was his true ultimate ultimate passion. Also, 1960 was a bit of a hard year for him, just in general. Fair. Because his marriage to Vivian Lee was falling apart. But he also met Joan Plowright, his second wife, so it was not all bad. Huh. I'm just looking at the sorry, I'm just looking at the the IMDb. Yeah, Brenna hasn't. I have to. I to be fair, I haven't seen All Is True. I have to see it. But Brenna. Yes. Hasn't directed anything good since Hamlet, unless all is true is good. I'll I'll take you to at that with that. So Brana Brana has had a resurgence though after making Thor. Thor was all right. It wasn't. Eh. I like Thor. I love Thor. Thor is like was his big 
basically his comeback movie. Yes. And that, and now it's weird. You'd never, I never would have thought that, like thinking about Kenneth Branagh, but Kenneth Branagh has become a bit of a director for hire. He's, he now completely trades off like these really art, artistic projects that are never going to really make money with mass market movies. Well, I don't know. It seems Cinderella's like Thor and Cinderella seem to be the anomaly because now he's just in the Agatha Christie market between Murder on the Orient well, no, and Death on the well, Nile. Well, no, those are his fun projects. Those are like this is a fun project. This is the, what I like to do for for me. And then in the middle, he does like, okay, I'll do Cinderella, I'll do Thor, I'll do Jack Ryan, I'll do Artemis Fowl. But now we're gonna see what's gonna happen because he did Artemis Fowl. So. Yeah. I just noticed which, which went which went to Disney Plus. It was that bad. Well, although I think Disney might be more forgiving of him because it's just like, yeah, we know. Hey, he. Uh, it's, it's on everyone. Yeah. It's just like it's just like it's a train wreck. We know, and that's why we dumped it on our Disney Plus. So hopefully he'll be able to come back from that. Hey, I but, think Cinderella gave him enough goodwill. That that film was huge for Disney. Yeah. I'm really, really rooting for Brana. I don't know, though. He loves right now doing Perot. Yeah. So I don't know, but I'd love, I really want Brana to come back to do more Shakespeare films. Films. Is he, uh, is he old enough for Lear yet? Maybe we'll oh, get Oh, no. <laughs> the thing I, I joked before and is that Lear is the retirement role. That's what I'm saying. Is he old enough? He's, what, 60? No, he's, he's late yeah, 50s. Yeah, no, it looks like I'm, I'm failing at math here. He's born in 1960. So that makes him you know, 62, 61, or 61 this year. Uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Give him 10 years and we'll get a King Lear out of him. Yeah. Well, the big role I say he should go for right now, where he's the perfect age to do, is... Antony, Mark Antony. I want to see him do Antony and Cleopatra. He Who is, is about the he, he's about the right age for it, and there's no definitive Ant, Mark Antony and Antony and Cleopatra movie. So well, there is a definitive one, but for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> yeah, not that one. Uh, destroyed a studio for a while. So that's not even Shakespeare. The so lastly Olivier and Brana Brana went full circle of being the next Olivier when he played Olivier in an Oscar nominated performance in My Week with Marilyn yeah that was a nice touch and he watching it just him in the movie, he is fantastic as Olivier. Just being really fun, charismatic, but also petulant and egotistical. But also, when you see what he has to put up with from Marilyn Monroe, it's like, I get it, man. I totally get it. <laughs> so, is that all we want to say? I think so. We've gone certainly a bit long. <laughs> I don't think it. I'm. I don't regret any minute. This has been so much fun, Excellent. and it's been great. We've we've gone a long time going through the Hollow Crown and the histories 
with you, Alex. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, thanks uh, so much for for doing this. I think that was great to do to uh, round out all four episodes. Yeah. Well, uh, if you if you want to do Love's Labor's Lost, I will do Love's Labor's Lost. I I, I was able. I I got myself through. I don't know how. I got myself through <laughs> stupid uh, Leo DiCaprio Romeo plus Juliet. So Love's Labor's Lost might be a bit more painful just because the play itself is um uh, have you have you read or seen any of it i have not but i know well, it's not have a, been a... watching maybe the bbc one first and having a baseline because again brona he goes in an interesting direction with it uh so maybe having a bit of an understanding of the play itself before watching that one might be worthwhile um, okay i'm yeah. sure the bbc one does a, a fairly straightforward version yeah well they yeah. usually do it's it's an it's an interesting play. Um, I think it's an underrated. Like it's it's definitely not. I would never put it as one of my favorites, uh, but I think it's underrated as a Shakespeare play. Mm-hmm. Hey. Well, that that might be a great future episode. So we'll see you then. Thank you everyone for coming in to listen. Have a good good day.